morning again, and uh, if I've not met you yet, my name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at Foothills. Again, I want to thank Michael for being with us. You know, uh, the fact that he's here and sharing that story, those stories with us, is a demonstration of the truth that God is at work around the world, that the gospel is continuing to be unleashed and spread, and we're grateful to the Lord for that and hearing that, and we have been seeing that, right? through our study in the book of Acts. And so why don't you open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 16. It's on page 924 if you're using the Bible there in the pew. We would love for you to follow along with us. Acts chapter 16. There was so much, and I suppose, you know, I'm in, a, I'm in one kind of role as the, the, the teaching pastor here in that sense. And so Acts chapter 16, so many things about the, the message were resonating in my head as Michael was talking. The pattern of what, what we see Paul doing moving into a new area and beginning to break ground with the gospel and all that. I, I hope that maybe you'll connect some of those dots and see that some things don't change in the pattern of ministry and mission uh, for all of us, no matter where we are in the world, whether we're right here or whether we're half a world away. And so this part of the book of Acts has great historical significance. How many of you have been to Europe? Right, a lot of you. That's what, don't be ashamed. It's all right. It's good. And there are a lot. There are a lot of amazing. So much great history in Europe. Wonderful cathedrals, many of which are near empty on Sundays, and yet the gospel is still moving across that continent. New churches are being planted. New peoples are coming to faith in Christ. And in this part of the Book of Acts, we see the gospel for the very first time get a foothold, get a beachhead in Europe. That's what happens here. And as we see that take place in the city of Philippi, we see the disruptive effects of the gospel on individuals' lives and even in an entire society, how the gospel upsets things and moves them around and causes change to happen. It's really a fascinating thing. I want to give you three bullets to think about as a framework for the message. We're going to see that God guides, that God saves, and God enables. So those are the three broad hangers that we're going to use. But in order to get our bearings, Baron has given us a map. All right. And so as you look at this, now I know if you're in the back, you may not be able to see the map. Or if the sun is in your eyes, you may not be able to see, see the map. But there it is. And this journey begins in Antioch of Syria. And so if you're looking at the map on the right-hand side, in fact, it even says start right there. What a, what a great thing. And it begins there. And Paul and Silas begin that journey. We remember from last week that we were studying the Jerusalem conference. And there was a conflict in the church. The leaders came together. They wrote a letter that was, was meant to go back to the Gentile churches in what is today Turkey. And Paul is going to take that letter to those churches along with Silas. And as they leave Antioch of Syria and they head north around to Cilicia, they come back to Derbe and, uh, and Iconium and Lystra, all of those places where they had been before, where Paul had been before with Barnabas. They take that letter. They encourage the churches along the way. And as they do that, they pick up a new guy. Remember, we read about him last week at the beginning of chapter 16, Timothy. And now Timothy is with him. And as we read through this text, we're going to discover that the narration shifts from kind of a third person to the we, right? He, this person is going to say, oh, well, we're, we were here, we went there. So Luke is writing Acts, and suddenly he becomes part of this team. And we're gonna see that as we look at it. So that's, that's where our bearings are at, right? They've left Antioch of Syria, they have come around, and they're, they're headed westward and kind of tacking to the north as they come through what we know today as Turkey. So let's look at verse six through 10 here of chapter 16. 
And it says they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And note this, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, so they want to go north then. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. They keep tacking westward. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him to, and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, into Greece, concluding, you might even want to circle that word, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so Paul wants to push into Asia. He most likely wants to go to Ephesus. But it says the Holy Spirit forbids them. They tack a little bit further north. They want to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit doesn't allow them to go there either. They go west to Troas. They are headed towards the Aegean Sea. And Paul has a vision in the middle of the night. This man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. And immediately it says they, they, they sought to, to go there, concluding that God had called them to preach the gospel in that place. And so the first point is that God guides, but we don't all get a Macedonian call, right, for our lives. We don't get a Macedonian call for everything in our lives, to go from here to there, to make this decision or that. In fact, it was out of the ordinary, even for Paul, to get a Macedonian call like this, to have a vision in the night where God would direct him. So if you're holding out for a vision, you got a decision that you're facing, don't, don't put all your eggs in that basket, all right? It's not God's ordinary way of guiding us but we do see that God guides us, and he does so today. How does he do that? Well, sometimes God forbids, and sometimes he permits. We don't understand. I don't understand. But we don't have all of the blanks filled in here. All we know is that the Spirit says no. It's unusual to me because it's the Spirit that launches them on this mission. It's the Spirit that longs to take the gospel into the world. And yet the Spirit says, no, you're not going there yet. And they try to tack in another direction, and the Spirit says no again. God forbids, and yet God permits. We don't always understand that. God guides us circumstantially and rationally at times. Circumstance alone is probably too subjective for us. You know, It's a little like reading the tea leaves. I've had people tell me all kinds of things over the years that, oh, I just knew God was at work because my dog you know, ran away, and it was... You know, I just think, bless their hearts, you know. Um, circumstances are not really enough for us to get a handle on what God is doing. At the same time, you notice that it says they concluded, concluding that God was calling us. Well, how did they come to that conclusion? How is it that they added it up, literally, that they should go, that God was actually calling? They looked at a set of circumstances over a period of time. Here's what was, here was, what was undoubtedly the truth, that God had called them to take the gospel. And then he had sent them on that mission. So they went and they were taking the gospel. We don't understand why he forbid them one place or another or why he even led them to Greece. We just know that he was working through that. And so circumstantially, these things are all happening around them. And as they look, then he gets this vision. They add it up and they say, God is calling us to go there. In other words, we don't have to check your brains at the door when you come to follow Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's what they're doing and we see that happening. I've seen that in my own life. God often will guide us in a personal way and also with the community of believers. He knows your name. God knows specifically what he wants to do in your life. 
there's a point of sanctification here or there that he's working on and he's gonna take you through a set of decisions and a set of places, meet certain people that he's going to do a work in your life. And at the same time, God means to work in us and guide us through a community of believers because as a Christian, I don't live my life in a vacuum. I'm part of the body of Christ and as a believer and as part of the body of Christ, we're members of one another. And you're saying, okay, well, what are you getting at? This is what I'm getting at. If you're facing a decision about the future, something that is weighing on you, you should be willing. In fact, you should willingly and gladly submit the process of making that decision to some of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, Psalm 1 warns you of the opposite, right? Don't don't take up with wicked, evil people, sinful people. Don't Don't be standing around talking to those folks because there's no guidance from God in that. It tells us to lean into the word, and we most certainly should do that. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, because we're members of one another, we should be willing to submit our lives to each other and to say, brothers, can you help me? Can you pray for me? Can you give me some wisdom about what I'm thinking regarding this decision? If they concluded that this was God's will, it wasn't just a top-down decision by Paul, the leader of the mission. They concluded it together. They all, I can imagine, sat and talked about it and prayed over it and considered and then concluded that this was what God was doing. They did it together. You know, in Acts chapter 15, we just came through there. There was a conflict in the church. They have a meeting together. The the leaders come together, and they discern what is the will of the Lord for us. Uh, And and then we see it here. And, And we see in Proverbs, right, over and over in the Proverbs, it says that we ought to seek wise counsel. So if you're facing a decision, submit it to some brothers and sisters that you know are walking with Christ and ask for their help in discerning God's leading. God guides that way and God guides gradually and unpredictably. You know, they they get a no about going into Asia. They get a no about going further up into Bithynia and then God guides them to, to Greece and to Europe. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know your future and you don't know what's coming over the next month or over the next couple of months and there's an unsettledness about your life, it's okay. Because if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are never alone. He is always with us. He's always with us. I I love the quote from Debbie Livingstone. Debbie Livingstone was a Scottish physician, early, mid 1800s. He was an explorer. He was an anti-slave advocate, but he was a pioneer missionary to to Africa. His life is very interesting. This is what he said, without Christ, not one step. With Christ, anywhere. And that's the posture of our hearts. If you're asking God for guidance, this would be my best advice to you as I look through the scriptures, and that is to trust Jesus every single day, to walk in the light that you have, and trust him to take you wherever it is that you need to go. Trust him to take you to wherever it is he's taking you, where you belong, because he will do that, sometimes in a personal sense, but often through the community, gradually, and at the same time, unpredictably, he will ask you to do things that you would have never had on your own agenda. Sometimes he forbids, sometimes he permits. The circumstances and using our own minds and putting it together, God uses all these ways to guide us. That's how these guys get to Philippi. And when they get to Philippi, we see that God saves So look at verses 11 and 12. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. It's a little island. And the following day to Neapolis, now they're at the coast of Greece, and from there to Philippi, about a 10-mile hike to the city. 
Philippi is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And they're in this place. Now, Philippi was so Roman that uh, commentators refer to it as Little Rome. Uh, It was far from the capital city of the empire, but it was very much like the capital in its ethos, right, in its culture. And at the same time, there are people there who have never heard the gospel. And this chapter tells us the story of three people. And I've got a chart, stole it from a guy named Tim Keller. Some of you are familiar with Tim Keller. And, and he plots it this way. How are people reached with the gospel? How does the gospel break into people's lives? And we see these people along the left-hand side of the chart. So there's Lydia. We meet her first. She's an Asian. She's wealthy. She has means. She is a God-fearer. She's not yet a Christian. And God uses the scriptures, the proclamation of the gospel, words. That's the ministry approach generally with Lydia. And then there's a slave girl that we meet, very much uh, a native Greek, we would think. She's poor. She's a slave girl. She's owned. She doesn't own anything. She's spiritually tormented, really. She's possessed by a demon. And we see that Jesus... Uh, you know, saves her from that demonic power. It's, it's powerful deeds. It's the power of Jesus. And then there's a jailer who is very likely a Roman man. A lot of people think that he was an ex-Roman soldier, and now in his retirement, as it were, he's a jailer. He's a blue-collar guy. He's got a family. But he's practical. He's indifferent about religious things. And yet God uses a miracle to get his example, and, to get his attention, and the example, I think, of Paul and Silas to see him come to faith in Christ. God saves these three stories. Look at verse 13. That chart will stay up there if you want to take a picture of it or whatever. Tim Keller, that's where it came from. All right, here it is, verse 13. It says, on the Sabbath day, they're in Philippi, on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there to be a place of prayer and we sat down, we spoke to to the women who had come together. And so remember Paul's uh, MO. He would go to a city He would find the synagogue and he would start with the Jews and the God-fearers proclaiming the gospel from the Old Testament text and explain to them who Jesus is. But in Philippi, there doesn't seem to be a synagogue. You need 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue. And so there probably either weren't 10 Jewish men there or there weren't 10 Jewish men interested in forming a synagogue. Either way, there was a place of prayer, which is like the next step down. But it was a place where the Jews and some God-fearers could gather. They could hear the Old Testament scriptures read. They could pray together. And it was out by the river. And so they found that. And it says they ran into some women. And in verse 14, it says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So she's from Thyatira. That's Asia. So much further east on that map than we have been seen. And if that name sounds familiar, you can go to Revelation chapters two and three. You can find the church in Thyatira. It's Asia. Why is this Asian woman in Macedonia? Why did she come to Europe? Why is she in Greece? Well, her city is known for purple dye. She's a seller of purple goods. And the Romans love purple. They sew it onto everything. So what is Lydia but a smart, savvy entrepreneurial businesswoman. She saw an opportunity and she seized it. And so she's got a business there, right? She's also a God-fearer, like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. She worships the God of the Old Testament, but she's not yet a Christian until Paul and Silas show up and these guys and they begin to go there and they begin 
to tell the story of who Jesus is from the Old Testament. And it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God saves. You know, week in and week out, for some people, the sermon is just like, eh. And for some people, it's like, wow. Why is it that Lydia is the only woman that we know of in the text that seems to get it beyond all these other women? Because it's God who opens hearts. It doesn't have anything to do with the eloquence of the speaker. It's God who opens hearts. It, it, it says that they were there for some days in the city. Have you wondered about how long it took for Lydia to come to faith in Christ? How often did she listen to Paul talk about the scriptures and point to Jesus? We simply don't know. I mean, we could speculate. It might have been on the first time that they met and he began to preach and teach there. It might have been the sixth time. We don't know. If, if you're not yet a believer in Christ, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, can I just encourage you to keep coming, keep listening? If you have a Bible, keep reading it. Keep asking questions. Because on one particular day, God opened Lydia's heart the way a flower opens to the sun. And she believed and that's how God works. And if you are a Christian, would you ask God to open the heart of your neighbor or your friend or your coworkers or people half a world away? Ask God to open hearts. Ask God to cause them to pay attention and to believe the gospel. Theologically, what happens here is what Paul writes to the Corinthians, right? Second Corinthians chapter four. God has shown in our hearts, right, to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love that verse. He's basically saying God puts it all together. And for those people who were God-fearers who knew the story of the Old Testament, God has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. You want to know what the glory of God is all about? Look to Jesus. And her heart was opened and she believed. Now, the next two stories that we see here are dramatic. They're dramatic. But this is a quiet moment. And I think that this is the way most people come to know Jesus. I think this is the way most people do it. I think that people hear the scriptures. They come into a place like that. They hear the scriptures. They join a small Bible study. They hear the scriptures or they open the Bible themselves and they begin to read the scriptures. They start to ask questions. And over time, they come to faith in Jesus and God opens their hearts. Look what happens next in verse 15. It says, it says that after she was baptized, her whole household as well, she urged us saying, I have, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. She believed and she was baptized. It's the consistent pattern in the book of Acts that faith comes before baptism. People believe on Christ and it's followed by this public demonstration of their faith in baptism. That's what takes place. Her household, likely all of the people that worked for her, her servants as well, it's very much a picture of, of what happened in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. These people have heard the word as well and they've come to a place of faith in Jesus and they're baptized as well. And we will see it again for a third time now in Acts where a household comes to faith later with this jailer. The consistent pattern is that belief comes before baptism. Every person in this chapter that's baptized believed first. And after God opens her heart, I love the response here that Lydia opens her home after she declares her faith in Jesus publicly through baptism, she shares her wealth. She shares generously with this team. She says, please come and stay with me. And I'm not gonna take no for an answer. She's selling all the time, right? She has prevailed upon them and they can't tell her no. They can't tell her no. Lydia is an amazing person. She has terrific means 
She now sees herself as a steward of what God has given to her. It's disrupting her life, the gospel. It's beginning to change her individually. God saves Lydia, and God saves this servant girl in verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. This is such an odd thing, uh, this demon-possessed girl. That's what I believe this is, a spirit of divination. If you think back to Roman and Greek mythology, the oracles and those who would tell the future and give fortunes, the Romans loved that. They leaned on that. And so here is this poor girl who was possessed, I believe, of a demon spirit. And the word actually, this divination, is, is the Greek term. We get the word python from it. And so if you can imagine, you go back to your mythology days of studying that, that great snake that would guard the oracle of Delphi. And, and so they're trying to give us this, this picture in the scripture of this, uh, with this language that this girl is possessed. She's been permeated by this demonic spirit and she's telling fortunes. She's telling people the future. She's being used and exploited by men for money. That's an old story in the history of humanity. And I want you to keep this in mind, that Jesus was engaged time and again by demons. I know that in 2020, it's hard for us to think in terms like this. How could it be possible? But it is. There are spiritual things. And in our prayer time before our worship hour this morning at 8.30 in the foyer, we read Ephesians chapter 6. There are spiritual things at work all around us that we can't see. And it was very true, and that's what was happening here. This girl is no fraud. This is not mental illness. She was possessed of a demon. And she followed Paul and us, Luke wrote in verse 17. And she's crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing that for many days. What an odd thing that a demon-possessed girl would fall around the missionaries of Jesus who were declaring the gospel, and she's saying, I second that. I think that that's true. The most high God, he's given us the way of salvation. I mean, it is so, and, and do you see what happens? This kept going on for many days, and Paul became greatly annoyed. <laughs> Have you ever been trying to share the gospel with people and get greatly annoyed by some kind of interruption or something going on? I don't, I don't understand. Don't, please don't ask. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why a demonically possessed girl would follow around the missionaries and declare the truth. The best guess I can come up with is that somehow the evil one is trying to get as close of an association with the missionaries as they possibly can to give, to give their ministry, as it were, credibility. So I want to get as close to them as I can so that people will look on them and say, oh, we, we like what they're saying. And, and she's with them. Perhaps there's some credibility to that. Paul wasn't going to stand for that. He didn't, he didn't like that kind of proximity. He didn't want anyone drawing those conclusions. And so it says he got annoyed. Actually, it says he became greatly annoyed. And he turned and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. It, it almost, when you read it, it almost sounds like Paul just flew off the handle and and cast a demon spirit out of someone. But how is it possible to fly off the handle, to be so in the flesh, and then at the same time do something so spiritual as to cast a demon out of somebody? I don't think it works. I think there's something else going on here, and I think that he's struggling with this potential association that people may draw. I think he's probably also very grieved over the condition of this young woman, because she is twice owned. She is owned by these cruel men who exploit her, in her terrible spiritual condition. She's owned spiritually, she's owned materially. 
And Paul has had enough. He commands the demon to leave. The demon leaves. And why does the demon leave? In the name of Jesus. Jesus is the one who crushes the serpent. Yeah. You can't have a bigger contrast between two women than these two women. Most of us would be happy to leave this service and go to brunch with Lydia, but the slave girl, she would freak us out. <laughs> we wouldn't want to be too close to her. They're very different people. Nonetheless, God saves them both. I know that the text doesn't say that she came to belief in Christ. I know the text does not record her baptism, but I thought about her, I thought about Jesus and his ministry, the, the demoniac and the Gadarenes, Jesus cast the demons out of that man. What happened to him? He was so changed, the gospel so disrupted his life. He, he was set free by Jesus from demons that possessed him and he was sent on mission by Jesus to go tell his family and his friends at home what Jesus had done for him. So I'm, I'm taking it that, that very, something very much the same has happened with this young woman. She's come into her right mind. Jesus has saved her in that sense. And even the economy around her is now disrupted because of the gospel, just as it was when Jesus delivered that demoniac in the gospels. And so I assume she's one of the early members of the church. And it was the power of Jesus, this dramatic display of his grace and his goodness, his mercy, that caused her to turn. God has saved Lydia, the slave girl, and this jailer. Look at verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone because they didn't care about her, they only cared about the money she generated. They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in, attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And so these men are ticked because they don't have their moneymaker anymore. But they don't go to the magistrates to say, you know what, these two guys, they came up and they delivered our demon-possessed girl and now we can't make any money. They didn't say that, did they? They walked up to the magistrates and they said, these guys are Jews. And so they play off a very anti-Jewish sentiment that's, that's very active in Rome. The Romans didn't much like the Jews. They tolerated them just very little. They looked at the Jews as kind of religious snobs, like you people are holier than thou. You're constantly separating yourselves from the rest of the population. You segregate yourself off from everyone else. You refer to yourself as clean, and we're unclean. They did not like the Jews very much. These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They're teaching things and customs that we're not supposed to be part of. They're foreigners teaching foreign things. They don't belong here. The gospel disrupts people's lives, individuals' lives, and a society as well. The gospel will not respect your revenue stream. If you ever get involved in making money in some illicit way, the gospel will not let that sit. It will disrupt your efforts. The gospel will not permit you to maintain your prejudices and your biases towards other human beings. It will not allow it. And if it does, then you're not reading the gospel of the scriptures that we have in Christ. You should check your heart. Check your gospel. It won't allow these things. For the humble who know their need, the disruption that the gospel creates in a person's life is welcome. Can you imagine the relief that that slave girl had when Christ delivered her? 
But at the same time, if you are a person who is gripped by a need for power and position, for notoriety, if you're driven by your pride, the gospel can be deeply threatening to you because it will not allow you to stand on that kind of footing. Look at verses 23 and 24. The gospel continues to press in. and It says, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, fastened their feet into stocks. They take a severe beating. Think of the beating Jesus received before the cross, the beating that the apostles took in Acts chapter 5. It was a terrible beating. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the second letter to the Corinthians. He said, I've been beaten with rods three times. This wouldn't be the first, it wouldn't be the last. He wrote to the Corinthians as well. In the midst, he said, of being stoned and shipwrecked and beaten, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. If someone had beaten me with rods, I, don't, I think I would have just been sorrowful. I don't know that I would have been rejoicing. When I read this text, I, 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 think, of, I think of these men as spiritual giants, superheroes of faith. It's midnight. You have been beaten to a pulp. Your back is bruised and bloodied. The blood is sticky and matted on your body. You are seated on a cold stone pavement and your feet are chained into stocks. You are not comfortable. It's cold down there in the inner reaches of that prison. If you've ever felt like you were alone, I think you would have felt alone in their situation, in their position. I would have been angry, I might have been throwing a pity party, but Paul and Silas are praying and singing. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, perhaps, to our brains. And some people will say, well, they were praying and singing because the rest of the jailhouse heard them, all the other prisoners heard them, but I don't think what's happening here is evangelistic praying and singing. I think they're praying and singing for the sake of their own hearts, to encourage one another in God. And as they do at midnight, in a dark time of trouble, God shakes the earth. Look at what it says. And suddenly, and it says that they were singing and praying, the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds unfastened. And when the jailer woke up, saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped, because he's on the hook. If these people get away, it's gonna cost me my life. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we are all here. I don't know why they all stuck around. I have some ideas. They're all there. I'm sure that many of those prisoners, they hear these guys praying and singing, I'm sure some of those prisoners thought, those guys are just fools. They're fools. They don't know what they're saying. But I'm also sure that some of those prisoners who stuck around thought, I don't know what it is that they have, but I want to know more. I have questions. I want to talk to them. And anytime it's midnight and you're face up to a very discouraging, disheartening situation and it's hard and you feel like you've been beaten to a pulp, and you turn your heart to God, and you pray, and you sing, and you show that God is your treasure more than anything he can give you, people will sit up and notice. And some of them might call you a fool for believing such things. But some will lean in and want to know more. 
and want to hear about this God to whom you cling. Wherever God takes you, even if it is someplace you would rather not be, you are there really for more than one reason. I think you're certainly there for some sanctification of your own heart and your spirit. That's true. But you are also there for the advance of the gospel. We just have to think back to Acts chapter 8 and remember that God scatters his people purposefully, intentionally. Wherever he sends us, we are there to see that the gospel goes forward. Well, the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? Do you see it? He comes out and he says to Paul and Silas, he falls down before them. He brings them out of there. He called for light. It's it's lit. They can see what's happening. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And there's a lot of wrangling about that. You know, was he, was he asking the ultimate question? What must I do to be saved? Or was he saying, guys, I'm in big trouble. I'm not sure what to do in this situation. How am I going to be saved from this? I actually kind of tack in that direction. And the reason I do is because I think Paul doesn't necessarily misunderstand his question. He's answering a much bigger question that this man ought to be asking. And so he's about three steps ahead of this guy. You should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then you will be saved, you and your whole household. Because listen, the biggest, the biggest concern, the biggest fear of this man's life is not losing his life in the present tense in that sense, it's losing his life forever, separated from Christ. Paul sees an opportunity to share the gospel with him and that's exactly what happens. Look at what, what takes place. It's not just that he gives the gospel in a sentence, in a moment, the one minute gospel. It says that they go on, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. They explained it even more. And he took them that same hour of the night, he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. And then he brought them up into his house and he set food before him and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What, what a disruption to the night, what a disruption to this man's life that now he's come to faith in Jesus. He's heard the whole story. He heard it in a moment when his mind might have been on other things. But then God used the explanation of the gospel further and he's come to faith in Jesus and he's believed and he's baptized and the same can be said of the rest of his household. I love it. The gospel disrupts everything. And it, it takes a situation, it takes a situation where you would have thought would have been hopeless before you knew Jesus and it causes it to be an occasion for worship. God, through the gospel, opens our hearts to see our homes as places of ministry opens our hearts and our wallets to be generous and hospitable to others. And he opens our lives to other people and it's the gospel that disrupts us so much that it challenges us and our plans, our hopes and our dreams. It challenges those and it leads us into things that we would have never considered before. It leads us in directions that we might have never thought to go. The gospel disrupts our lives. God guides, God saves and God enables. This is the shortest part of the message. Here we go. I, I love this very end. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. The jailer reported those words to Paul. And he was saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Can you imagine the grin on this guy's face? His life has been so changed now by these men who were prisoners, but now they're friends. They've been in his home. He shared a meal with them. He is overjoyed that he can release these men. They don't have to spend the night in the jail. But Paul said to them, 
They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come down themselves and take us out. Talk about injustice and justice being served, right? How does God enable us? God enables us to suffer for the sake of the gospel and God enables us at times to stand on our rights for the sake of the gospel. And that's what we see Paul doing. It's, a, it's an unusual scene. The police report that word to the magistrates and, and look what happens. They were afraid because they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Why did Paul ask for a public apology? apology? I believe that, first of all, it was due to them. It was right. They had suffered an injustice. He demanded an apology. And, and so they came and they, they apologized. They were Roman citizens. It was illegal of them to deny them a, a, a trial, a fair trial. It was certainly illegal of them to even beat them. We want an apology. But secondly, I think that he asked for this apology for, for a more strategic reason. He's not just trying to humiliate these city leaders. He's not trying to, to, to do that. He's trying to protect the young church. Paul wants these city leaders to think twice in the future when he's gone before they pull the trigger and decide they're gonna beat some of those Christians. So he's playing the long game in Philippi, even though he won't be there much longer. He wants it to be clear that they were doing nothing wrong in sharing the gospel. And that brings an immediate tension in your thinking probably. Why didn't he play his get out of jail free card before he ever got to jail? Why didn't he pull out his wallet, his passport, and say, I am a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. And I think it's because tactically he chose to suffer for the gospel and for the sake of an example to those new believers in Philippi. Think about it. What if you were one of those new followers of Jesus, but you weren't a citizen? You didn't have the option that Paul had to say, I'm a citizen, you can't do this to me. And if Paul had done that, they could have said, wow, that, that's really good for you, Paul. What, what about me? What's gonna happen to me when they come for me? What's gonna happen to me when they come for my family? I think that Paul does not want them to think that earthly citizenship is a protection from suffering for the gospel. Paul does not want them to think that they can depend on earthly citizenship to protect them from suffering for the gospel. Now I'm on the high wire because I know that our nation is unique in the, in the world and I'm grateful to be an American. I've been out of this country many times. Maybe it's nostalgia. Maybe it's because my daddy was a Marine. Every time the custom agent says, welcome home, I get a little nostalgic. But you know what? I love Arizona. I love Phoenix. I love living in America. But this is not my home. I have a home that's a city, that's four square, and it's being built by God. And many of us are gonna share it together. People from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. That's where my citizenship lies. That's home. That's the place I long to be, and my heart aches to be there. So even as Christians in America, where we have many privileges and many protections, we should not look to those things, our earthly citizenship, to escape suffering for the gospel. 
And if there's anything that's coming more and more real to us in 2020, it's that. I know that we're trying to stand on our rights for the gospel, and we want things to be a certain way in our nation. But I actually believe that it's not going to get easier for us as a country or as believers in this nation. It's going to become more difficult. And the more we stand for the gospel, the more we will suffer in one way or the other. Is your heart ready for that? Paul does not assert his rights early. It feels very Acts 15-ish to me. He could. He lays aside his rights, though, for the sake of the gospel. He suffers for the sake of the gospel, and I believe he suffers as an example to those other believers in Philippi who will not be able to play that card. After all, we have to be ready for suffering. Jesus told us so much, he showed us the way to do it. Look at verse 40. So they went out of the prison, they visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. They saw Lydia, they saw the brothers, plural, I think there were more believers now than just Lydia and her household, the slave girl, this jailer and his household. They, they saw the brothers. There were several of them. There's the start of a church in Philippi. There's a beachhead in Europe. There's something new that God is doing. And about 10 years later, the Apostle Paul, from a different prison, would write a letter to the church in Philippi. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for them to, to read that letter in that congregation on that Sunday. Who would have read it? In Philippians chapter one, it talks about the fact that there are overseers there, there are elders, there are pastors in that church, and that there are deacons in that church. Maybe one of them read the letter. Or maybe, if you'll allow me a little holy speculation, maybe Lydia read it. Or maybe that slave girl. Or maybe the jailer. Maybe they didn't read it, but maybe they were sitting there with everyone else. Maybe they were huddled up in Lydia's living room. As someone read, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. What a privilege to know this God, to be guided by him, to be saved by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to know that he is coming again, he has ascended to the Father, he's coming again, and he will bring to completion on that day all that God has set in motion in our lives. And in the meantime, what should we expect? Expect our lives to be upended and disrupted at every turn by the gospel. So submit your plans to him, your hopes and your dreams to him. Trust that his grace will enable you to face whatever dark times, whatever difficulties, whatever struggles, and to do it in a way that you would have never been able to do it apart from Jesus. Expect the gospel to make you a generous person, hospitable and kind, gracious to others because of the power of Christ at work in you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the stories of changed lives that we see here in Acts 16, and I am grateful I am so grateful for the obedience of a team of men who continue to push and continue to seek how they might share the gospel in one place and then another, and they followed your guidance and your leadership. And a new church was born on a new continent. And it shows us once again 
here in the book of Acts that you are unleashing the gospel. And I'm grateful for the story today that really connects eras, that the gospel is continuing to be unleashed. And even today, a new church was born in a city most of us have never been to. We are grateful for the work of your spirit and the spread of the gospel. God, I pray that we would be part of that, that we would submit all of our lives to you, our plans, our hopes, and dreams. Trust that you would guide us, that you would fill us with your spirit and enable us to suffer well, to give you glory, to be ready to share the good news with others, and that as you change our characters and shape our hearts, that we would be the kind of people that would look more and more like Jesus every single day with generosity, with kindness, showing hospitality to others until you come, Jesus, and bring to completion everything that you have started in us. We pray it in your name. Amen.